0: The what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent on a Tuesday night. It's the eve before my big move. I'm moving tomorrow. It's, uh, it's weighing on me because i got to record this, go pack a little bit more, move, and then record tomorrow night. Uh, so this is a good uh, break for me in the stressful process. I, I've said many times this, that moving is probably a top three worst activity in the world and I've done it way too many times, Philly, South Carolina, back to Philly, Chicago, New York, Brooklyn. Uh, it's not fun. So I'm excited to be having this conversation. I've got two, two guests with me tonight. Uh, the founder and biz dev manager at BlockFi here in New York city. I want to introduce you all to Zach Prince and Brad Mickelson. Welcome to the podcast guys. Thanks for having us. How's
1: it going?
0: It's going great. Thanks for coming on. Um, this is the first time I've uh, I've had two people on at the same time since the brothers O'Byrne, so it's good. Uh, it's a good little change of pace here. It's usually one on one. I like this setup a little bit more. A little little variance of uh, conversation. It's,
2: a, it's very professional. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what we strive for here at Tales from the Crypt. Uh, we strive to be the most professional podcast with with
2: with the most vulgar language. The question is how much professional help do you have for your move cuz that makes it better or worse? None,
0: zero. Yeah. Not even getting You know That's what? We've tough. got so we're moving into a studio. We we we're, we're small living. We went from a studio to a one bedroom. We hated the one bedroom. We're like back to a studio. So we don't have much to move. And again, I've moved so many times that I have this process down pat and I don't need to pay anybody to do it. And it's a good workout. I'm actually in a in a fat camp right now, my brother and my cousin. We have to work out four times a week. So tomorrow's move counts as a as a workout.
2: Uh, so maybe you should drink more bourbon and less beer tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: that's true. That's true as well. So let's jump into this. You guys, a BlockFi um, uh, personal lending using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as collateral, which is an incredible uh, incredible utility that you guys are providing to to the community. It's a it's a step in the direction of making Bitcoin more mainstream in my opinion. Um, But before we jump in to BlockFi, this is Tales from the Crypt, Zach in particular, what is your tale? How did you get into Bitcoin? When did you find it? Where were you? What was your mindset?
2: Sure. So it goes for me all the way back to 2015. At the time I was working in fintech uh, at a company that um, did a lot of different things all in the online lending sector. And I was at a meetup somewhere and somebody in the meetup said, I've been buying a lot of Bitcoin. I think you should look into it. And I was like, all right, hot tip. <laughs> when is let's this? Let's see where this goes. It was after it came down from 1000 Okay, so, so this was like you know, 2014, 2015. Yeah, it was 2015. I checked the price on my phone. I was like, all right, it looks like it's come down a little bit. Maybe it's a good time to buy. Created a Coinbase account. Bought a little bit of Bitcoin. Kind of forgot about it. But then like a month later, I checked the price again and it was at $450 and I sold it and thought I was the most badass trader (laughs) that had ever lived on the planet of earth because I was up 50% in 30 days and I was like nice you're the man I had that swag at one point yeah like a month or two later I checked the price again and it's at 700 and I'm like you're an idiot (laughs) Um, so from there you know I, I bought Bitcoin again I started just getting really personally interested in going down the proverbial rabbit hole in my spare time At a certain point in 2016, my girlfriend was like, you talk about this stuff way too much to me, and I don't want to talk about it, so you need to start going to some meetups or meeting some other, you know, just people that you can talk about this with, because I'm not that into it. I know what that's like. And so I started doing that, and and I saw a bit of a, a transition occur from the end of 2016 to early 2017, where... The audience at this meet at these meetups in New York City changed from being uh, you know maybe more of the the freaks that you refer to when you when you uh, you know intro the podcast (laughs) which is not a bad thing at all it's fantastic but we're all freaks in our own way exactly early 2017 right around the time the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance got announced and I had bought ether towards the end of 2016 the, the audience changed and there were venture capital investors. There were some guys in suits some bankers uh, Some on, some more entrepreneurs and I was like, this is going mainstream. It's gonna get huge and I, I was investing more all along the way and then I had an experience in April of 2017 where I was trying to buy an investment property in Texas where I'm originally from mm-hmm. and I was feeling so proud of myself for having bought Bitcoin and ether when they were worth less than they were at that time that I listed them on my financial statement that I submitted to the bank that I was applying for a loan with to buy this investment property this is actually a bank that I worked with before so they knew me a little bit but they freaked out they I got a phone call like the day after I submitted it and my loan officer was like "Zach, I showed your financial statement to my compliance team and they think you might be involved in some illicit activity (laughs) That's never fun. I know you have a job and you make good money, but we think you're doing some some illegal stuff on the side because you have Bitcoin and it's only used by drug dealers and and terrorists and money launderers and.
0: At this point, was it in your Coinbase account, or were you like showing like Trezor reserves or something like that?
2: I just filled it out on a form. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, I think at the time it was. You know, I had like Trezor. Who are these people to assume the worst? It's First United Bank, I'll call them out, First United (laughs) Bank. And I think their headquarters is in Selma, Texas. (laughs) Um, And they didn't like it. And and ultimately I was still able to get the loan, but I had to submit a financial statement without Bitcoin or Ether listed on there. And that was kind of my light bulb moment for uh, BlockFi, combined with the fact that I just became a huge believer in the ecosystem and the impact that it was gonna have on the world. Uh, in my experience in alternative lending and fintech. And I thought that there was going to be a large need for debt and credit products in the ecosystem and pretty quickly decided that I just needed to start a company around this idea. Yeah, that's, uh, that's
0: incredible. Like, that's funny. Like you had like a lot of people I talked to on this podcast, they have real world problems where like their life gets, uh, Disrupted by by an incumbent uh, system and they just say hey fuck it I'm gonna build around this and that seems like what you're, you're doing and actually something. I'm very interested to hear Tonight is sort of your view on the traditional consumer lending Landscape because obviously you worked at what is it, orchard
2: platform and Yeah, so I was at I was at two different companies. So one called Cognical? orchard platform uh, Orchard was we were basically in the middle of the online lending ecosystem. So Um, We had data products, technology products. We had a broker-dealer, an RIA, an ATS. We worked with Lending Club, SoFi, Prosper, Funding Circle, all the big online lenders, and then also institutional investors who were buying loans or lending to those platforms. And I learned a lot in there about, you know, what works in different lending models, but also there's some analogies that I've started to make in my own head to kind of boom and bust cycles. Mm -hmm. So when I first started at orchard, it was maybe 2011, 2012 ish. And at the time the idea was peer to peer lending is going to just completely destroy banks. Mm -hmm. And they're not gonna exist anymore and there were huge conferences where everyone was like dude We are taking over the fucking world like Goldman's done. Wells Fargo is done We were just fresh out of the financial crisis like we got to kill these guys (laughs) and That was really exciting Um, But what ultimately ended up happening is the model quickly shifted from being peer-to-peer to to, Well, actually if Goldman's gonna give us money at LIBOR plus 5% we'll take it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because retail investors are kind of hard to deal with and you know, they don't give us a billion dollars in one shot. They give us a billion dollars in, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of smaller checks. And so you saw the mo- the funding model of these platforms evolve from being retail focused to institutional focused. And then you also saw that the ecosystem didn't completely get rid of banks. Mm-hmm. It actually just created a more diverse and robust, lending ecosystem overall, because it complemented what the banks were doing and filled in a couple of areas that uh, the banks weren't supporting very much. So it's still a big ecosystem. Like I saw a stat the other day that 36% of the consumer loans that were made uh, in the last quarter of the last year were from online lenders Mm -hmm. like Lending Club and SoFi. And that's 36% of consumer loans that wouldn't have been made if those companies didn't exist because banks aren't willing to do them for, for, you know, uh, a lot of different reasons and the analogy to the, to the crypto world. And I'm excited to talk to you about this because I think I have maybe a slightly different opinion than some others and, and especially one about uh, the dollar and, and what some of the implications are of this technology to the dollar. Um, But, but I think the story that comes from that is that it's okay if it doesn't Completely destroy everything that already exists and it actually just complements it Everybody can win Um, And the thing that I want to talk to you about on the dollar side is so we've been thinking a lot about right now We only lend in the US but 40% of the loan applications we receive at BlockFi are from International companies or international individuals Mm -hmm. and so in thinking through how are we going to address that segment of the market one of the biggest questions is how are we going to get them the money and how are they going to pay us back? And the easiest way to do it would actually be to use, you know, crypto rails and some type of stable coin. And so as we were thinking through this, I'm thinking through the use case on the individual side and I was kind of like, well, if I live in, you know, name your country with bad monetary policy, do I want to hold Bitcoin or if I could hold a dollar in the same way that I could hold Bitcoin and actually believe that, it's going to be worth a dollar. Would I rather hold the dollar? Mm-hmm. I think I might rather hold the dollar a lot of the time.
0: Definitely.
2: I'd probably want to hold some Bitcoin too, but I think I'd, I think I'd like to hold the dollar. And you remind me of uh, Murad Mamadov right now. So, oh yeah, yeah. Is this his argument? Murad I should meet him because I've been thinking through this a lot.
0: Well, Murad thinks there's going to be a transition period between when Bitcoin uh transitions from the store of value to a unit of account eventually like that he believes that'll happen i do too i think that'll take decades possibly a century but in the meantime while bitcoin is transitioning to that and is still very volatile there will be stable coins that that sort of suck up that value but with that being said i'm always i always go back and forth to stable coins usually back on stable coins because to me stable coins are are susceptible to black swans event swan events they're only stable until they're not like nothing is ever technically stable in this goddamn universe we live in <laughs> and like so you're basically just under you're re- excuse me you're uh relying on the underlying assets that make that coin stable being stable as well which is like so I, I would love to to hear sort of what what you think from like a stable coin perspective like what are your favorites like how do you see playing like tether? I think it's the perfect stable coin. Hey, one tether equals one U S dollar. I think that's perfect.
2: Yeah. I mean, so we're, we're definitely for our use case at block five, more attracted to stable coins that are actually backed by a dollar in a bank account, mm-hmm. ideally as verifiably as possible. Um, I don't think that we're going to be able to, uh, gather enough information about, Uh, Tether to pass muster with some of our investors that we have now or want to attract in the future but platforms like true USD or the forthcoming uh, USDC from circle uh, Seem like they could be a a completely different story. So we're attracted to those Mm -hmm. we're attracted to the digitization of Assets in a bank account or or assets in the traditional sense of the word and we're actually building out a pipeline of debt and credit type products that exist in the traditional world that we will potentially tokenize the first being the cash flows from the loans that we're issuing to individuals. So, so we're also kind of, you know, from a self-interested perspective looking at, okay, if there's a tokenization process that works particularly well for just a one to one dollar backed coin, why couldn't it also work for treasuries, for bonds, for, you know, other types of Sound a, like a money a- market fund?
0: Sound like you're on a big Pomp tip too. That's like uh, talking with uh, Anthony Pompliano. That's yeah, we're,
2: a... we're fans of Pomp. I mean, um, I think one of the, the really exciting things about crypto is the level of access that it provides for. Mm-hmm. Anyone in the world can buy a Bitcoin if they have a connection to the internet. And if the same thing were true for other assets, there's another podcast I listen to called Animal Spirits. Mm-hmm. It's more kind of like mainstream investing. But they had a user question the other day that was this guy from Colombia and he was like, hey, I can't buy U.S. equities. I can't buy U.S. bonds. I basically have access to, you know, with the amount of money that I have, I basically have access to the Colombian stock market, which has, you know, 15 or 20 stocks. What should I do? <laughs> you know, and so, so like it's
0: opening up markets to these types of people.
2: Yeah, it's an accessibility play, right? Like, yeah. why shouldn't everyone in the world be able to buy not only Bitcoin, but other stuff? Mm-hmm. Um And I think that's really, really powerful. And then to tie it back to BlockFi, when you think about what we're doing in terms of creating debt and credit products, what I get really excited about in terms of what we could potentially do in the next couple of years is Bitcoin and other assets like it are the most accessible and financial and, and financeable assets that have ever been created in the world. And so if we can make loans to someone in, Argentina or Zimbabwe or name your country with bad monetary policy at you know, sub 10% interest rates in a few years Like that is so powerful You bring credit to parts of the world that have never had it at an affordable rate before and this is actually you just
0: You just scooped me there one of my bullet points one of my topics I'm so sorry to to speak about with you. You did not let me bring it up. You brought it up yourself I got a tweet out the other day if you take accessibility into account, crypto may be the most financeable consumer asset the world has ever seen, uh, which I think is like a fascinating a fascinating thought, like a fascinating thought experiment to run down. Like the only question is at this point is what is the, the, desi- the perfect design to getting to that tokenized world? Like what is the infrastructure? What is the protocol? and and from a design perspective from a ux from a architectural perspective like what is the best approach at this point so what are you guys seeing at blockFi like do you do you like the erc20 or erc 791 structure whatever it may be on on ethereum are you waiting for sort of more infrastructure to get built out on top of bitcoin via lightning network and third layers or are you something like whatever stock's doing at t0 or yeah uh,
2: so products like that we're we're waiting mm-hmm. we um, We have a I would say a general bias and affinity towards ethereum mm-hmm. uh, Consensus ventures led our seed round or you know big supporters of the work that uh, they're doing and ethereum is doing in general um, It's not time for us to start creating these things yet. We mm-hmm. feel like the time for us to uh, You know go to the market and say hey invest in our tokenized debt security will be after we've already established ourselves as the lowest cost, fastest, most reliable lender in the crypto market, at least in the U S market. Um, so we're not quite ready yet. Uh, and we're, and we're watching, uh, and, and learning.
0: So what, uh, obviously Ethereum, not Ethereum bias, but you, you like the Ethereum structure. What else are you looking at outside of that? Um,
2: not much, <laughs> not much to tell you the truth. Um, but and we're but we're not, we're not looking earnestly right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have had some conversations with the team at Securitize. Mm-hmm. I think what I think the work that they do is a bit more focused on the, uh, regulatory fundraising and then also on the technical side a little bit, but I, I think they use Ethereum. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but either. it seems like they from from the limited number of conversations that i have that that we've had it seems like they have the most uh actual use cases that they've implemented so far whereas everything else like in the tokenized security market today it's kind of like yeah it's coming yeah well and that's like so that's one thing
0: and that's why i like that you guys are starting slow and starting with a core competency competency which is using Bitcoin as collateral, like, which is like simple and just makes sense out of the box, but figuring out how, how to tokenize these. And listen, like I, so you're talking to somebody who's shit on the whole ICO landscape, Ethereum, like the whole tokenize the world mentality. And it's not, it's not because I think it's a bad idea. I think just the timing is off. Like we need to build out these protocols. Like again, going back to time preference, it's going to take a while to build out, the secure protocol level and then build out the functionalities on the second level to become interoperable with the protocol level. So you can basically hash data every 10 minutes if you need to So sort for of figure out how to tokenize this. And I think it's, so as much shit as I talk, I do think this is the way we should go in the future. I just, again, it's a timing thing for me and I like that you guys are taking a wait and see approach. Um, and it's just interesting to see, especially now we're in the depths of the like the worst bear market since you first got in and uh, it, or since right after right before you got in and uh, it's interesting to see how people are reacting to like the price price uh plummets uh, if you ask me like
2: yeah, I mean it's brutal i mean on <laughs> on the uh on the utility token side, I think. Um, a lot of people predicted it and it's kind of expected mm-hmm. But it'll be really interesting to see You know, it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next six months It'll be interesting to see how much, you know, I, I believe that we're Entering a phase of Bitcoin decoupling from the rest of the market a bit. Oh, yes, It'll it'll, it'll this be week
0: especially it was like
2: yeah, it'll be interesting It'll be interesting to see how long that trend continues. It'll be interesting to see how Ethereum fares in a market where there are a lot more competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting to see how their you know, scaling solutions are uh, implemented.
0: See, that's, that's my biggest worry with Ethereum in particular. So I have a tweet out there. I think it was The Black Swan. Or was it Anti-Fragile? It was one of Taleb's books. One of the inserto books. Uh, I've said this on this podcast before, but one of the inserto books, there's like a passage in it where it's like the reverse of the Lindy effect. So the Lindy effect, like the longer you survive, the more likely you'll be be surviving into the future. Um, and like the reverse of that is if you set a goal for yourself for a team, which Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake and sharding. Uh, like so, Casper actually came out. Like Casper, the original implementation spec came out like three years ago. And, the way Vitalik and crew marketed Ethereum out of the, out of the gate, they were like we'll, we'll transition to POS like in the first 18 months and then that changed and now, so Ethereum launched in 2015 or 2014? 2015. So we're three years into it already double their original schedule now the earliest transition to proof of stake sharding is like 2021, I think the latest estimates have been. And so Nassim Taleb in his book, it's like every time you're your project's deadline is extended into the future. You can basically expect it to be extended like a time and a half into the future. So the longer it takes these guys to transition to proof of stake sharding, the longer, like the longer, so the more they push it back, the longer it will take to happen. That's what I meant to say. So the more and more they push it back, the longer it will take to happen and transition to this. And in the meantime, like they they are centralizing in an in a node fashion like the the way they're like the amount of nodes they have on the network is centralizing because they have so much data like infura I'm not gonna make you guys jump into the details of this, but like infura uh runs a lot of the servers that that people are running nodes and transactions through, so for me, it's like they have they have to do it quickly if they're gonna do it do it successfully uh, before they become too centralized but is that like does that worry you at all like
3: stuff like that
2: so in general I struggle to say a bad thing about Ethereum or any of the other projects that Mm -hmm. are legitimately going after that use case Um, I think it's still so early that uh, that you've got to try a lot of things and you've got to aim big and and we'll see what happens me personally on the decentralization versus centralization component, I'm not that worried about it. So I, I think I'm maybe a little bit unique uh, as like a hardcore you know Bitcoin slash crypto believer in that I'm like super open with my data. Mm-hmm. I'm not really worried about anybody like stealing my, my PII or my information or my money. Um I feel like a lot of our systems work and so and I also I also feel like a system a system completely without trust will be less efficient than a system with some trust. Exactly. And so the if the question is like would it worry me that somebody's coming more centralized, becoming more centralized, I would say it doesn't worry me, but that's just like me personally. I do think it would worry a, a lot of people who have that as a, you know, something that uh, they care a lot about. I'm just not one of them. No. And I would,
0: I would agree to the fact, but it's like the deep question you have to dive into is what essentially needs to be decentralized. So like, that's why I don't care about Ethereum doing smart contracts in the world computer. Like go for it. Like, make... Like, I talked to my buddy, Santiago Siri last. we met for coffee, and he was t- talking about how easy it is to write co- contracts with Solidity, like... And as a programmer, it's, like, awesome to build on. But for me, what really has me slip up in my mind is, like, there should... Like, all right, that's cool, and I love that, but Ether, E-T-H, the token, should not have that that value if it's centralized. Like, it's not censorship resistant peer to it, peer where it's moving towards a non peer to peer uh sort of way with node centralization and so that's one thing like for me it's like yes, if you want to build smart contracts on ethereum like do it like they can work out, but like maybe like insert a very sound decentralized like hard to disrupt money like Bitcoin is slow and cumbersome, I would argue for a reason because it should be very hard to change and and so I think there's like a confusion and a bifurcation between move move fast and break things, making capabilities with smart contracts and stuff, and the move extremely slow and conservatively with Bitcoin where it's like, hey, this is a completely decentralized, not completely yet, but the most decentralized out of everything. Let's make sure we keep it that way. And that's what gives the underlying Bitcoin token its value. And so I, I just come... I come I, I reach a a sort of confliction within myself when, like, talking about the value of the underlying token uh, versus what the programming
2: language and the capabilities of the platform are. I think it's way more clear for Bitcoin, yeah. right? Like, I come from a primarily a sales and business development background. If you if you ask me to sell someone on like the addressable market and odds of success for Bitcoin of achieving it versus Ethereum or other smart contract platforms, I could sell the Bitcoin one way easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the interesting questions, and we should, we should make sure not to dovetail too much and, and touch on some of the things you mentioned we want to talk about earlier. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, well, we're one only 26 of
0: the in- minutes in. We got time. We got time here, Zach.
2: One of the, uh, <laughs> one of the interesting questions, and I think it might have been Dhruv who mm-hmm. who tweeted this when it comes to that addressable market for, for smart contract platforms is like, how subversive do you want to be? Mm-hmm, exactly. I thought that was really interesting. Like, it's like, okay, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, there's a lot of demand for gray markets and black markets. And if you can, if you can facilitate uh, that type of activity, then it's really big, but you've, you've kind of got to make the decision, right? Exactly. Like you've either got to do it or not.
0: Yeah, because the trade-offs are huge. Like if you trade-offs it, are huge. If you do it, it's very cumbersome. And, and, and the nice thing
2: about Bitcoin is it just doesn't care. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it can be subversive and not subversive. It can be subversive and fully regulated by the CME at the same time.
0: So would you say did anything from like college or like before you got into lending, like push you? Or was it just like you were like, holy shit, this is like a new, completely brand new asset that we can.
2: Into crypto? With? Yeah. I like risk, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've kind of always been drawn to, um, to the extent that the odds are stacked in your favor, uh, at least a little bit, I, I'm the type of person that's more attracted to something that has a hundred X upside potential, mm-hmm. but a low probability than a, you know, 20% return potential, but a high probability that barbell it's just kind of in my, it's in my DNA, I guess. Yeah. Um. So I. So I like that, and crypto really embodies that. But it also has, it also has this social impact uh, perspective. So I, I guess one thing that did happen to me in college, I was, I got a scholarship to teach at a university in Honduras for a summer. Oh yeah. And I was, I was teaching at this university. It was like week three of our summer session, and we're walking to school one day. And There's a huge protest in the street like we couldn't cross the main street that we normally cross to get to our school And the reason was the military had showed up at the president's house that morning Taken him out of his bedroom flew him to Costa Rica and took over the country There's a military coup. <laughs> Manuel Zelaya um, Was the was the president at the time? And we called the person who was uh you know, our our sponsor at the school and we're like, what should we do? And they were like, get the fuck out. What? I was like 20 years old or something. <laughs> I, was, I was young. I was in college. How freaked and, and, we're, and we're like, okay. But one of the things that was kind of eye-opening for me, that was the first time I had traveled internationally, not just for a kind of like pure vacation with other adults uh, reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like people people in countries with bad economies have it really, really hard. We are so spoiled. And the democratization of finance perspective of crypto is really, really attractive to me because it it makes no sense that, um, you know, wherever you're born and whatever monetary policy that country has, dictates so much of like what your upside in life is exactly it's just uh, that's just not the way the world should be at some point in the future and the faster it changes the better
0: it's some people are handed the shit in the stick right from birth and it's nothing of their own doing it's just the systems are born into it's a big theme on this podcast and that's what again that's something that drives me towards bitcoin too it's like hey if we have this universal standard of money aka bitcoin where you really don't need forex uh you don't need forex cost and taxes and stuff like that make everything easier make everything more fair like it just fucking makes sense in today's days yeah
2: and we'll tackle remittance first right like yeah the rails for remittance are so bad <laughs> so. um i have a uh, a former colleague who's the cfo at a previous fintech company i worked at who went to a he's now the cfo at a at a, you know, remittance, traditional remittance company. And he's basically leading the charge to find some type of blockchain or crypto rail to use because they, they, they charge people like
0: 8%. It's ridiculous. Like and 8%. It's like people a, are still it's using like a, Western it's like Union a, and MoneyGram. It's
2: like a 10 or $20 minimum or something. You know, so if you send 50 bucks, you still hit the minimum. And then it's 20%.
0: Sorry. <laughs> That's so
2: messed up. It's,
0: like, it's absurd because it's not like obviously we have better ways now. Like you, it does not cost 20% to send that money. It's literally bits in a fucking machine going yeah. from one end to the other.
2: It's, it's just a question of how long it takes.
0: Exactly. So I believe BlockFi is helping usher in that future that we'd like to see
2: right now. We're just lending to like wealthy crypto people in the U S but we'll get there. <laughs> no,
0: that's what like, that's what I talked about with Drew. Like that's where you start. Like it's like cell phones in the eighties. Like, uh, like it's not unfortunate. It's just the way tech works. Like the rich get access, not get access to it first or the first to adopt it. Cause they have so much discretionary income. It's like, Hey, let me fuck around with Bitcoin. It's like, Oh, I wound up turning into a lot of money. Like I need to e- either use this or collateral or store it. So I'm going to need products for that. And what you guys are doing from a, from a collateral standpoint is one of the first products that makes sense for this, for this demographic of, of holders, hodlers.
2: Yeah. And I think another thing that's important to go back to the beginning in terms of what happens to the traditional system when something comes to disrupt it specifically for crypto is that the more that banks, regulators, traditional institutions get involved in my view, the higher likelihood of success that we have. And really shortly, maybe a month or two after I started BlockFi last summer with my co-founder Flory, uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch released their first report on crypto and one of one of <laughs> I the things that. I remember that. One of the things that was mentioned multiple times in the report was You know the common bank sentiment of if if no one lends against it, it doesn't have any value and Banks aren't gonna be lending against crypto anytime soon they have to first figure out how to custody it custody it which is gonna take approval from, you know, six different regulatory bodies who aren't going to say yes to that anytime soon. They have to learn how to custody it. They have to learn how to move it around and then maybe they'll lend against it. And we're Mm -hmm. a long ways away from that. So you need companies like BlockFi, like Unchained to step in and facilitate uh, that functionality uh, of Bitcoin having enough value for companies to lend against it. And what's kind of funny is that it's actually a lot easier for a bank, even a big traditional bank, to lend money to BlockFi as a corporate entity Uh who's built up this track record of making these loans uh, than it is for them to just do it themselves. So I think that, I don't know if it's six months or a year or two years from now, but you know, we'll be, we were the first crypto lender to raise money from inst- from like institutional investors with the Galaxy deal. I think we'll also be the first to raise money from a bank. And I think that the more banks that are involved, whether it's uh, just providing traditional bank accounts for, for companies that are active in the crypto space or lending to companies like BlockFi or eventually custody in crypto, the better. Because that makes that that mean that just means it's like not going away.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, congrats! That's an awesome accomplishment. Yeah, thanks. And second of all, so this is like sort of quasi derivative exposure for these guys for the banks. Would you say like? Well, if they're lending you money. Obviously, they're getting some. Think some of it like the um, interest rate on the back ends. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like a uh, private slash miniature securitization. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if BlockFi has A pool of loans worth ten million dollars and the bank wouldn't make those loans themselves but they might be able to look at the performance history of other loans that look like it and say hey we'll lend you five million dollars based on this ten million dollar pool of loans that you have Mm -hmm. and then we have to do you know some other math in terms of putting other counterparties in there using our equity capital that we've raised from venture investors and and basically it all kind of works out and, <laughs> and, um, and, in result is that we're able to pass through cheaper costs mm-hmm. because banks, you know, for better or worse, get free money effectively. And so their cost of funding is really low. So when you're any type of alternative lender, you either want to get to the, the top of the mountain being, uh, bank funding or tapping the securitization market with like, a triple a rated uh securitization and your cost of funds is like libor plus you know 200 bips 300 bips
0: slowly but surely bitcoin reaches its tentacles into the incumbent financial system and says hey you're gonna like me no matter what you're gonna have to deal with us and that's why i like what you guys are doing it's like hey you're entangling yourself in the incumbent system and saying you're working with us it's gonna be good for you in the long run you might not like it now but we're gonna entangle you so you can't get out of this in the future.
2: Yeah. And the, and the good news is um, they want to. So we're, we're actively having these conversations exactly. and, um, and, and they want to get involved. It's not easy for them to get involved.
0: That's what um, they
2: need to check a lot of boxes. Like they have a lot of rules. They have a lot of lawyers. They have a lot of compliance people. But if you can if you can build something that checks the boxes and it's just that there's a box that you maybe haven't checked before here, but like all the other ones are the same, then it can work.
0: <laughs> well that's what so that's what I understand about the industry here in the lending industry. Like it's very laissez faire from, from like a licensing perspective. Like a lot of states are like, Hey, if you have the capital, you can start this business. Is it it's obviously It's the banks have handcuffs. They can't get into this for certain reasons. But if you're like uh, a startup lending in collateral service uh, It's easier from a regulatory perspective. Is that correct?
2: So so the primary reason that banks Stopped doing a lot of consumer loans uh, Was that the management of it just wasn't worth their time There's a few things that went into that calculation one was they don't have the best technology so they can't spin up a website, create an, a loan origination process that's fully automated and, you know, do it without like five people at the bank printing out a piece of paper and stamping something. <laughs> so making a, a small loan for a bank sometimes costs more than the amount of money that they're going to make. Okay. Um, so that was one part. There was also some, you know, Regulatory stuff uh, related to you know how their risk is measured and how the government checks whether or not they're in compliance with the new rules uh, coming out of oh eight oh nine um, but for fintech companies that are lending, I wouldn't say it's necessarily really easy mm-hmm. but it's it is clear exactly so yes. so it's clear what rules you need to play by and you basically have two options. You can either go state by state. So similar to exchanges getting, uh, you know, uh, MTL slash MSB licenses. Um, there are lending regulations that are on a state by state basis. If you're lending at low enough rates, certain states kind of say, hey, you're lending below 10%, have at it. You know, you don't even <laughs> need to like apply and tell us who you are. You can just, if you wanna lend money to, a, to our, you know, the, the, the great Makes people sense. of our right. of our state at, at 9%, like, by all means, please do it. Other states say, we don't care what rate you're lending at. We want to know who you are, what your product is. We want to make you pay fees to get a license and, and review everything. So that's one approach as you go state by state. Another approach is you partner with a bank and you originate through their charter, which is what all the big fintech companies like SoFi and Lending Club and others do. Mm -hmm. They have these bank partnerships where technically at the point of origination, the loan's not from SoFi, it's from, you know, XYZ Bank. And there's a few of them that, uh, you know, kind of specialize in this activity. Um, So it's it's not necessarily that it's easy. I think, you know, compared to at least like nine months ago, what some of like the crypto mindset was around regulation, like, oh, we started doing this thing and we had this idea, but like, it turns out we have to be, you know, compliant with this stuff and that's fucked up. (laughs) We at at BlockFi, like we've we've done this before, so we kind of just went into it, you know, eyes wide open and we just expected that the baseline was, you have to have state lending licenses or a bank partnership, you have to register with FinCEN and, and have a, you know, KYC and AML, uh, program with policies and procedures and training for all your employees. And so it's just kind of like what we viewed as standard.
1: Done it. We should probably mention we have the most lending licenses in the U.S. as well.
2: Brad
0: coming in with that hot tip. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: what's that mean? That means that we have the largest footprint for lending in the U.S. right now, which is really exciting.
0: I oh, yeah. like Like what do you mean by largest footprint? Like you can, yes. Yeah, so like I, I I, like you were the, the biggest loan originator or.
2: So I think if you, if you, if you look at a map of the U S and you look at mm-hmm. where you're exposed in the most lenders, areas, so yeah. okay, w- right where on. lenders who are lending money backed by crypto are active, mm-hmm. uh, block map would have like the most States with the light on.
3: Okay.
0: <laughs> so let's dive in the mechanics of it. What are the core competency, um, products and services that you offer uh multi-question multi-faceted question here so what's your product suite right now like simple product suite out of the gate uh where you seeing the most action and who are you helping the most
2: so so right now it's it's pretty simple we just have one product it's a us dollar loan backed by bitcoin or ether as collateral um and The people that were helping the most it's a mix Uh, but it's all crypto asset owners it's all people who believe that the value of crypto is going to go up over time and it's largely people who understand well they have an embedded capital gain so they bought it at a lower price than it's at now and they understand that if they sell it they're going to have to pay taxes on the gain and they're probably not really interested in doing that right now because they think it's going to be worth more in the future.
0: Hyper Bitcoinization, man. That jubilee. <laughs> some point.
2: Well, what could be better for people that believe in <laughs> hyper Bitcoinization than the ability to borrow in shitty fiat? To lever up. Yeah. Borrow in shitty fiat, use that as your spending money, and hold on to your precious Bitcoin.
0: So, yeah, this, like this is the most appeasing thing product to me personally that I've seen in a while. Uh, so let's, this is one thing I forgot to touch on with Drew, so how do the mechanics of these loans work? Particularly, if, let's say I take out a $10,000 loan, use Bitcoin as collateral, but obviously Bitcoin is very volatile, price is going to either go up and down uh, after I take the loan out. So how, how does the interaction with BlockFi work post-loan, depending on the Bitcoin price? So if Bitcoin price goes up versus if it goes down. Uh, what do you need to do with your collateral in those cases?
2: Sure. So, so when you start the loan right now at BlockFi, we will lend up to thirty-five percent of the Bitcoin value initially. So, if you have ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, we will lend you up to thirty-five hundred dollars secured by that Bitcoin. It's important to note that any upside. Uh, appreciation in the value of Bitcoin is our borrowers, not blockfy So, Bitcoin goes to uh, if that Bitcoin turns into twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand, that's our client's money, not ours. Um, if Bitcoin at ten thousand dollars, if the ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin declines by fifty percent and is now worth five thousand dollars, we have a margin call. So, the way the margin call works at blockfy is there's a 72 hour window where our clients have the option to either add more collateral, pay down the principal in USD or take no action. If they take no action and at the end of 72 hours, the price is still at or below $5,000. We will, uh, initiate a partial collateral liquidation Okay. and we'll rebalance the loan to value ratio back to 50. Mm-hmm. So, some of the questions we've received before have been like, okay, you're lending me less than the Bitcoin is worth. If you have to sell some of the Bitcoin because I hit a, you know, liquidation point, does that mean you're just taking it all? And the answer is no. Uh, We always, you know, the amount that we lend to our clients is the amount that they owe us and the Bitcoin that they posted is their Bitcoin. And the scenario where we're selling some of the Bitcoin we're using however much is received from selling the Bitcoin to pay down the loan. And then the loan is paid down and the Bitcoin is still theirs. I'm trying to think of where I want to take this. Because it's interesting,
0: because this is a huge, like, valuable service for big hodlers, obviously. Is that your biggest client base right now? And how receptive are people to this? Because right now, people with big Bitcoin holdings are like, uh, should I sell it? Like t- when it was in twenty thousand in December. Like should I sell it? And I feel like people aren't abreast to the fact that services like BlockFi and Unchained exist. Like you do not have to sell your Bitcoin to to realize the gains that you've gained on that Bitcoin. You can use that as collateral. It is risky. So here's what I'm trying to get out of here. Who are like the best types of people to utilize BlockFi? Uh, like people who don't want to sell. Like some. Lucky, lucky early investors in Bitcoin who may not have the best cash flow on, uh, in their, in their real lives. Like they might not have the best jobs, but they were lucky enough to buy a lot of Bitcoin in the past. How could they leverage their Bitcoin with you guys to to sort of take
2: themselves to another level? So what you just described is exactly the type of person that is an ideal client for BlockFi right now. Um, and, and who it makes the most sense to consider using a product like ours or Unchained, Um, the product will become more applicable to more people over time as the interest rate comes down. But today it's especially applicable to, uh, individuals or companies that are crypto rich and not necessarily cash poor, but with less cash than, Uh, they would like to have to achieve a um, Asset diversification that is ideal for whatever is going on in their life or business Mm -hmm. and that asset diversification component is important because what we see is that you know Some people some of our clients are using these loans to make uh, You know everyday purchases or cover general expenses, but more frequently what we see is that it's a wealth management type of tool. Mm -hmm. So uh, wealthy people have been borrowing against stocks, real estate, other types of, uh, you know, collateral since debt existed, it can be a very effective, uh, wealth generation mechanism. Um, and the most common use case that we've seen from individuals who are borrowing from block five is real estate related. So, and I think the reason for that is that if you are kind of over, if you look at your personal financial profile and you say, wow, I've got a lot of crypto relative to everything else, but you don't want to sell it because you know, it's going to be worth more in the future, but it'd be nice if you had a little bit more stuff in your portfolio that was just kind of like rock solid, like a rental home Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, a portfolio like a the REIT index from exactly. Vanguard.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The BlockFi option could be really great for you, and there's tax benefits when you use the proceeds of a loan to invest, and in stuff. Really, I didn't know this. So there's this there's this thing called the investment interest expense deduction, and basically what it what it does is if you use the proceeds of a loan to invest in something the interest that's charged to you is deductible from other capital gains or investment income in the same tax year. So what that means is, for example, if you're an individual in New York Mm -hmm. and let's say your effective tax rate is 40%, which is common in in New York, especially in Manhattan, you've got federal state and city taxes. If you use the proceeds from a loan to invest in something you can, you can deduct the interest expense from other investment income or capital gains. So assuming you have investment income and capital gains that is greater than the interest that was charged to you, you can think of your interest expense as being, you know, whatever it is minus 40% because you get this tax deduction. So you're after tax, Cost of a loan from BlockFi is, you know, the rate you're charged minus 40%. So we charge we charge you know 12% interest rate.
0: You need to get out in front of this and start marketing this like harder. Like well, that's why we hired Brad like, and he's here, <laughs> but he's not talking much. I never knew that. No, but in it's all it, like-
2: in all seriousness, like we've been we've been very under the radar and we've grown a lot but purely from word of mouth Mm -hmm. and since we made the galaxy announcement a few weeks ago or a month ago now we want to get ourselves out there more and uh now we're trying to do that you're helping i don't know
0: if this is going to help at all i don't want to make any i don't want to make any promises (laughs) but um no it's fascinating though because that's one thing like i didn't even know that like i didn't know that like I can it's leverage huge. my Bitcoin in that way, which huge. there's advantages to it.
2: Maybe. So let's say you sold some Bitcoin this so, year also. You probably have a tax bill.
0: Exactly. So let's jump into this. What are the pros and cons to selling your Bitcoin as opposed to putting it up as collateral to get a cash loan? Like,
2: Well, the the, the pro, it depends on who you are. So <laughs> the the it's all based on whether or not you believe Bitcoin's going to wor- be worth more in the future. Mm-hmm. Like if you think if you think Bitcoin is going to be worth less in the future, getting a loan from a company like BlockFi is never a good idea. You should just sell it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you think it is going to be worth more in the future and you think that your the composition of your uh, personal assets is not ideal and you've done the math on every time you sell Bitcoin, here's how much in taxes you have to pay. Mm-hmm then it, it just becomes a math equation. And and we've helped a lot of clients to, you know, they write into us and they say, you know, they kind of tell us a little bit about their situation and we have, you know, it's just a super talented team of people, um, largely with banking, finance, fintech and, and, you know, engineering backgrounds. And we're happy to say like, if you want to give us some numbers, like we already have a, some like pre built formulas, we can like, We'll do the math for you so that you can see, like, you know, here's what happens.
0: And that's incredible. And that's like, again, in, in so that's what like people, people think value is going to accrue to these blockchains, like right at the protocol level, but they don't realize there's like second order effects to the value of these type of assets, which is what you're providing. One question I have is like, what's the average duration of your loans? Uh, is, is, do you find it's more longer term or like two to three years, three to five, or is it more like 12 month loans?
2: So so right now uh, we're doing all one year loans okay. with no prepayment penalty. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to use it for less than a year, they can. But the maximum term we're extending is one year and that's for two reasons. Um, on the client side of the equation, we believe that costs uh the the cost for these loans at BlockFi and and at our competitors is going to come down aggressively over the next few years
0: yeah it's competition comes in it's just
2: competition natural. you know experience uh performance data on the platforms that are doing this costs are going to come down mm-hmm. so locking yourself into something that's super long term
0: doesn't make sense right?
2: well it's not that it doesn't make sense it's fine just understand that you shouldn't you shouldn't do it and then not look around a year from now yeah exactly. because you might be able to refinance it at a much lower rate mm-hmm. and if you are able to refinance it at a much lower rate you should understand how that would work with the lender that you're choosing because for example if someone doesn't allow you to have flexibility in terms of how you refinance you might have to come up with the entire principal in USD that you borrowed to free up your crypto to be able to refinance it. We've actually uh, seen that happen a bit with another lending business and people trying to refinance to BlockFi. So it's an, so it's an, it's an important consideration. The other reason we're, we're doing max one-year term loans right now is that we are just super oriented around effectively raising institutional debt capital. Okay. And we believe that the more things we can do that enable institutions to check all those boxes, except the one box that they haven't checked before, which is crypto, the better, because that means we're gonna get a lower cost of capital faster and ultimately BlockFi getting a lower cost of capital just flows through to our clients.
0: Mm-hmm. That's crazy, you guys have found a niche, man. Do you feel like you found, like, a diamond in the rough at this type of this type of niche market area in this specific sector? Like,
2: To me, it doesn't feel like a diamond in the rough because I, like, I come from lending and I'm obsessed with crypto. But it definitely is. Like, when I talk to other people about what I do, they're like, niche, bro. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but at the same time, I feel like there's something to say for having a product that's recognizable to people from traditional finance into Mm -hmm. crypto finance. Like, there always has to be those bridge services, and I think BlockFi really is one of those.
0: Well, and I would agree completely, and that's one thing that somebody with the finance, like, I harp on this too much on this goddamn podcast, but somebody with a finance background myself, like, I am in Bitcoin for, like, fuck the central banks, like, I think we should have sound money, but, and other people sort of Throw out, uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Or like, the, all banking is associated with central banking, where I am in this for sound money like, at the end of the day. And banking will be built on top of sound money. The problem with today's society is that banking is built on a n- unsound money, I would argue. And a lot of people have negative connotations towards banking services and bankers and bringing banking-type services to Bitcoin, where I would argue, like, no, like, we want this. Like, if it's built on a sound money, a sound foundation, it's okay. It is ethical, and it is reasonable, and it makes sense to actually grow your economy. And so that's one battle I've been trying to figure out how to, how to sort of fight, not fight, but sort of manage on the front lines. Like, frame there's it, a difference between banking on top of fiat currencies and banking on top of sound currency.
2: Well, frame it like, what makes Bitcoin stronger? What makes bitcoin stronger like exactly having 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 the cma the cme approve uh you know trading of bitcoin futures having banks lend to companies that are lending against bitcoin having countries like japan say yes all good bitcoin's all good like it's just all good and their gdp grew 0.3 percent like would you rather have those data points and that additional interaction with the bitcoin ecosystem or not and i think like you would definitely rather have it you definitely rather have
0: it yeah and there's like there's like that contingent of like punk rock bitcoiners who are like no we're gonna fuck the man completely like no banks it's like all right let's take a step back like these services are sort of needed at a certain extent like you need to be able to lever up it's just you don't want the underlying currency to be so levered up that it it's a 72 trillion dollar like derivative market or something like that whatever whatever the derivative market is for U S dollar based derivatives right now. Like that's when it gets out of hand. What people don't realize is like, if you have a sound base monetary system, you can build derivatives off of that and they will be, the risk will be controlled, uh, commensurately with, with the sound money that's underlying it. And
2: yeah, it's super close to gold and there's lots of things that, um, if you, if you haven't worked in, gold markets and and I haven't, I've learned all this stuff, so I'm not, I'm not an expert, but there's, there's lots of things that are analogous that didn't necessarily hurt gold. But I think that Bitcoin is kind of like gold plus, plus, plus. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah, gold. and so, you know, concepts like in gold, in the gold markets, there's allocated gold and unallocated gold Mm -hmm. and allocated is like, you've got your bar, you know what the number is, on what shelf, at what vault. You've got unallocated. You've got one, of two t- you've unallocated got one
0: of two keys.
2: And unallocated is like, we've got a gold bar for you here, but it's mixed in with all our other gold bars. Exactly. Um, and having those things, having an ETF for gold, having other things for gold didn't kill gold. Gold's seven trillion still, or $6.5 five. So seven trillion,
0: 5. and the one thing I fall back on gold is the old adage: uh, an ounce of gold in Roman times could buy you a good tunic, an ounce of gold now will buy you a nice suit. Like gold has held its value, comparatively speaking, for thousands of years, four thousand years. Like you could buy a good ass suit in Roman times; it was a tunic back then. Probably wouldn't look as good in a Mar- as you would in a in an Armani suit today, but you can. <laughs> you have the same purchasing power over time and that's what people. So that's like one thing in Bitcoin, this is completely tangential to what we're diving into, but like one thing in Bitcoin is a lot of people like eventually Bitcoin will become the unit of account. So people keep trying to price it in us dollars. But I'm like, let's start thinking about Bitcoin and purchasing power. Like thinking about Bitcoin is like in a couple of years, like one house, like maybe in a decade, like a good bit of land, maybe in two decades, like, buy a whole fucking city like stop thinking of it priced in dollars and start thinking about like purchasing power i don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that but that's just like a tangent
2: i just think it's going to be so interesting (laughs) (laughs) and i'd be pumped if all that stuff happened because right yeah
0: so let's get cosmic here we're uh we're drunk enough in the podcast so we can get cosmic like so how do you guys see this changing the world
2: like in a macro sense like what What is like your currency consolidation? What do you mean by that? So what I mean is how many currencies are there in the world right now? I don't even know the answer. <sighs> Whatever it is, it's too there's many.
0: 220 countries. I don't know if every country has a currency. Not entirely. everyone has a
2: currency. No. Not everyone has a currency. Maybe there's I know 50. W-
0: when I worked at a futures fund, we traded like 22 pairs max.
2: Yeah. So maybe there's 20 that matter and mm-hmm. 60 that exist. Yeah. I think the 40 that don't matter and maybe some of the ones that do matter are gone. Right? Like just, you don't need them anymore. And and if you can deliver the other currencies including Bitcoin, which I think becomes one of the major ones via the internet, like at a certain point people are just going to be like, you know, if we don't want XYZ currency, we're just going to switch to the other thing and you'll have the same types of uh, uprisings that you had, that were powered by information flowing through Facebook and other stuff, and toppling dictators, you'll have those same things, but it'll be uh, e- economic-based uprisings. Yeah, and it's and it'll touch it'll touch the countries that are most affected by poor monetary policy and being you know having a currency that doesn't matter first, and well. that will just kind of propel. Bitcoin and other crypto assets forward,
0: and that's the crazy thing about it. It's like the emerging markets are finally getting their fuck you moment on the on the grand stage like they can say hey we're gonna start we're gonna start this domino effect like you can either follow us or fall behind because as a retail investor as an American retail investor i'm like so I come from like an economics background, and I just so i don't want to say presciently, but just so happen to take a elective and ec- economics class my senior year of high school, which was the fall of 2008 and like become enamored with like how our economy works. Like I, I was lucky to have a teacher who was very adept and very focused, focused on the problem and was really sort of like, Hey guys, like as a 17 year old, like looked us in the eyes and was like, this is not right. Like you should probably try to figure out what's going on in our economy. So I went to, college as an econ major with like a know your know your enemy type mentality and like after going through it it's like to me it's obvious it's like hey like you cannot print i don't know if you saw the thread i read over the weekend but i wrote a thread on the fed's policy leading up to 2008 and post 2008 and the inconsistencies and the uh the sort of the inconsistencies and the the like welching by the like by Ben Bernanke and crew in general. Like so, in two thousand four, he Ben Bernanke was. The, I don't know if he was the Fed Chair yet or if he was like a top governor, but he was taking uh, taking credit for quelling the volatility in the markets with the great moderation. is what they called from like two thousand one to two thousand eight, or like two thousand two to two thousand eight, where like everything petered out. Uh, economic growth was pretty steady housing prices were going up pretty steadily and in 2004 steadily (laughs) Pretty rapidly actually But Bernanke wanted to take credit for that He was like monetary policy has led us to this great moderation where things are great But what he didn't realize is he's just suppressing volatility and that volatility was released in 2008 and if you so Parker shout out to my boy Parker Lewis in Austin, you know Parker?
2: from texas i don't know parker but i like shout outs to austin
0: parker parker lewis is an austin boy uh he wrote this incredible paper it's private uh he sent it to me but he basically dissected the fed minutes from 2008 to only until 2012 because the fed released them four years later or yeah or six years later actually so he was only he wrote this paper earlier this year it was like up until 2012, the minutes, and you look at the inconsistencies of what they were saying. Like, hey, we're going to implement this policy to affect the economy in this way. And we'll have this results, and you realize like their their cause and effect mental models were so mm-hmm. off. They have no idea what they're doing. So for me, I'm literally like, I so I, I went from high school, fall 2008 financial crisis to college to study economics working at a managed futures fund following the central banks and like you literally have no idea what you're doing and that's why i'm in bitcoin now is because all right we need the stable base to sort of base future economic uh decisions off of and people don't realize and that's that's a big theme of this this podcast is that people don't realize how their money works and how it is affected by bureaucrats and academics that are Basically experimenting with models that they created in college and they think will make the world a better place But in reality make it much worse off That was a tangent. I don't know
2: two things number one To me that is one of the most exciting things that's happening in this space is that really young really smart people are saying what's a uh, monetary policy and how do we think about it and how are we going to change it and build around it and build something better? Like that wasn't happening no. before Bitcoin. Nobody. Was it, it wasn't it. happening. It was like, Oh, you want to go do econ lame? Why don't you do tech and work at Facebook? That was the vibe, yeah. right? It was like, yeah, that was the vibe. Now uh, it's kind of brought it to the, the forefront of, you know, just, general like ambitious young people's mind share and Good stuff comes out of that. Like if you have a bunch of really smart people working on something Good stuff is gonna come out about it There's one area where I where I slightly disagree with you and I'm gonna do it cuz we're drunk and it's fun to disagree jump in I And this might because I'm a little older so you're like high school 2009 I'm college 2009 yeah, senior in high school. So I'm a little older. I am scared shitless of something going wrong with the dollar. And I, I maybe you, you said earlier, like, it's 100 years, or you said it's going to be a while. And so, like, maybe I'm gone, and it, and it doesn't matter, so, like, not my problem. But that is the reserve currency of the world. The entire global economic system, for better or worse, the reality is it's built on the it runs on the dollar right now and i struggle to see how we can peacefully transition without causing
0: blockchains are war
2: with yeah i know but like how do we <laughs> yeah. how do we peacefully transition man and like the transition sucks and it and it now and it, nah, that, that, that that's what i see so like i, I hope it happens like, I, th- I I I hope that it happens. I just hope that it's, like, a smooth process along the way. So you, cause
0: you know what creates a smooth process is apathy. It's, like, literally people lose so much faith in the central banks and the integrity of the U.S. dollar. It's, like, they become apathetic. Like, all right. So let's face it. Let's face it. Like So I talked about this with Nick Cuarer last week, like, the U.S. dollar, yes, comparatively speaking, it is the strongest currency in the world. Comparatively speaking, like you are not, it well, is the same. But all happy. that
2: all that matters is comparatively, because we live in the real world. <sighs> we live in the real world. So, so uh, the, be, is, the best the best system the best system that's ever existed and been seen is the best system.
0: Up to this point, but that's not to be like confused with the fact that that system can become bastardized by following the same like we are doing what the Japanese did 20 years ago like we're doing yeah we're doing Abenomics Abenomics like just 20 years later we're late to the party and basically what this is why I hate I don't want to get into trade wars at all this is why I hate Trump's trade war is because all trade wars are basically a race to make your currency as devalued as possible and to make exports as cheap as possible to make sure your economic activity is up and i think so the world of currencies in particular like you're always going to have that hodgepodge of like uh like the british pound was the the reserve currency of the world and the us dollar took it over there's always going to be that revolving door until you get a single borderless currency like a la bitcoin where you sort of don't need to have that fight anymore but if we're talking about regime change and stuff like that, the U.S. dollar has been on this tip for a century and a half, almost two centuries. Like if we're looking at historical... This is,
2: I, I know, and this is the interesting question, right? So like, you, I, I could make an argument that the world is more connected than ever before. The world economy has never been as big as it is now, and there's never been a currency that's had as much dominance in a globally connected economy than the U.S. dollar and it's and it's scary for me to understand how it loses its dominance, but on the flip side, I agree with you that it looks like japan right and and the decisions of people have a huge impact on this stuff they have a huge impact that's like what
0: people don't realize it's all psychological at the end of the day it really is
2: so one of the dreams that I have and this is going down a bit a, a rabbit hole that's slightly unrelated to Bitcoin cosmic is I want to. So I'm from Texas originally, and I want to open up this like Tex-Mex breakfast taco slash uh, salsa dancing family fun <laughs> center in Brooklyn. And and part of what's behind that is like I completely believe that borders need to become more accessible to you know like like the, the free flow of people should hopefully catch up to the free flow of information and, and money capital. Yeah. and ca- yeah, exactly. Information and capital. And I think that it, for the U S specifically, if we don't switch to that kind of mindset where it's like, Hey, if we're at, you know, 300 million people or whatever the number is like 10 years from now, we're screwed or Japan, right? Like economic growth is largely driven by demographics. And if the demographics aren't moving the right way, then it's really hard to get the economic growth. And so then, like, you know, with my Bitcoin hat on, I'm like, sweet, do that because I'll take over. (laughs) (laughs) But with my my what's going to just, like, generally happen to the well-being of, like, most of the people that I know.
0: It's heavy, dude. It's heavy. It's really heavy. And it's. When you're talking to somebody, like... Hey. I just
2: want a little bit of both.
0: <laughs>
3: right?
0: <laughs> right? You want, you want a little bit of both? You want, you want everybody to be all right? You I want, want like, the swirl right. ice
2: cream cone, vanilla and chocolate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does, like... I'm slapping my head here, but, like, it... It bothers... It, like, befuddles me as well, where it's like, I want this. And because... And the biggest problem with me is that, like, you can see it. You can literally see... The cycle that is ruining people's lives—that is a consumerist, short-termist type of mentality where people are taught to spend, spend, spend—and that's uh, that's uh, an emagulation of the debt society that we're growing in. Like we are literally at a point from a federal from a Federal Reserve standpoint where the Fed cannot raise rates above three percent, or they will bankrupt the whole country. So they are incentivized to print more money and they will they will fed explain that they're not printing more money they're creating more reserves unless sure.
2: demographics move in their favor man
0: well hey, well that's the whole point yeah, demographics so. will only move in their, pay, in their favor if people are let in not yeah. let it, not let it, well let in but are given the chance to to build themselves up in the system and i would argue that right now the fed policy is sort of again it's, it's pushing towards a fast consumption, like consume, consume, consume right away. High time preference where where they need to print money to pay back this debt. They need to get the the interest payments on the debt like right away, like bang, bang, bang. And they're not – they've literally backed themselves into a corner where they're not allowed to think with a, with a low time preference because of how much debt they've accrued. Like it is past the threshold where it is – we need to pay back this debt. And to do that, we literally need to put more and more people into debt.
2: But here's the thing. I feel like I just left. So, so we're going deep and I love it. And I feel like we left now we're
0: 17 and we got, we got a I, while.
2: I feel like we left this podcast and we went over to like Joe Rogan's podcast where they get real deep all the time. I've been called to Joe Rogan thinking, a Bitcoin podcast. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> no, I'm not that's serious. incredible. Um,
0: I, I think we're, I think the Fed has set oh, us up I'll, in a way that we, we cannot... I don't think we can come back from this. No, but here's and the thing. Like, how do we transition to Bitcoin without having as big as a disruption in the traditional economy? No,
2: here's the thing. So if you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. If you owe the bank a trillion dollars, you own the bank. <laughs> and if the bank has a, a shitload of guns and weapons... It owns you regardless of what's going on with how much money you owe the Uh-oh. bank. And the bank is the US. And the US owes all the other powerful countries of the world a trillion dollars or multiple trillions of dollars. Twenty
0: two trillion. That's what we're up to.
2: And so so if the House of Cards fails and the debt becomes too expensive, then these countries are looking at their reserves getting massively depleted. It's not something that they want to happen. And on top of that, we still have the strongest military in the world. So as as unfair and messed up as that is, it's the reality of the situation.
0: Yes, but it's only the reality of the situation until it isn't. So right now you have countries like China and Russia that are beginning, like what makes the dollar the reserve currency of the world? no chance. No chance. Look at the numbers. What makes the dollar the reserve currency of the world? The petrodollar.
2: Yeah, the petrodollar. Saudi Arabia
0: Arabia makes the dollar the reserve currency of the world.
2: And that's not going anywhere.
0: In my mind, it's such a refreshing conversation speaking with you guys because it seems like you get it. Like, all right, we don't need to create a protocol for every type of new money that needs to exist. We just need to create opportunities for people to take advantage of the, the wealth they've accrued and, and preserve that and leverage that leverage that more importantly, like using it to lever up and make something more of yourself by the smart decisions you made, instead of selling your Bitcoin and trying to lever up at one X, you can lever up at two or three X.
2: Yeah, exactly. When are you going to get Nick Batia on the show?
0: He, I mean, Nick, Nick and I BFFs. We need to meet in person. I told him, I was like, I'm not going to come here until he was in New York. He's a family man. He's got a wife and a daughter. Uh, he's on the
2: West Coast. He
0: was telling me, exactly. He's on the West Coast. He was like, I won't be able to get here until like next year. And then like a couple of weeks ago, he's like, my wife was like, you want to go on Tales from the Crypts? You can go like towards the end of the year. He like, should be
2: on. I've talked to him. So smart. Oh. I think the work that he's doing is so valuable and we are so we already run uh full validating uh, a full validating node for bitcoin mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't started testing the the lightning network yet but we're going too soon well, um it just makes so much sense
0: it makes so much sense and one thing so a lot of the FUD around the lightning network is people people be what's the fun i haven't even heard it so fun well i mean people will be like you're just you're just remaking the banking system on bitcoin it's like no you're not remaking the banking system in the way that people don't understand how interest rates are are bestowed upon the market right now like they're literally bestowed upon the market by individuals whether it be the the 12 governors of the federal reserve bank or the five people that meet to decide LIBOR every day like it is bestowed upon the market with lightning network interest rates, it is based off the economic activity. Like It is literally emergent from the system. It is not bestowed upon it at
2: all. Like, so so to one of your themes, the reason I just laughed was not because of what you were saying. It was because I had a friend who made some money on Bitcoin who called it Libor the other day when he was talking to me. <laughs> and when you just said Libor, I, I, I thought back to that moment. <laughs> But that's an example of the trend that this is enabling, which is people are questioning and learning what are these things. Right. Like and, if the, they, and if they call it Libra the first time, that's fine. Yeah. At least you're thinking about it. Exactly. At least you're figuring out like what is that. Well,
0: people don't understand like the mechanisms that made our traditional financial system work. Like the gold fix, the gold fix table was like you literally had four people deciding the price of gold or the interest rate. On gold lending, every day, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like this makes more sense because it's completely emergent.
2: You know, you can borrow money backed by your gold cheaper than the Fed funds rate.
0: How can you get cheaper than the Fed fund rate? now know it's seventy-five bips right now, at its lowest point in the last ten years. Fed funds rate was at what twenty-five bips.
2: The gold market. The 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 lending the lending the lending market for gold is a ass backwards lending market And the reason it's ass backwards is that the funders are People that believe in gold and so you have people who will lend against gold who are so happy to take on the risk of someone might not pay me back and I'll get to take their gold that they'll do it at a cheaper rate than like the how, Fed funds rate.
0: How much cheaper? It? Like one bit? Are they Depend, like it depends on it depends
2: on the time. So so it depends on the time. It depends on market sentiment. But there have been moments where you can borrow backed by your gold money cheaper than the cost that the U.S. government pays to borrow money. I never knew that. It's insane. I didn't know it either until I started a Bitcoin lending <laughs> business. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how does this work in gold? (laughs) And then I read it and I was like, it's completely backwards from what you would think uh, about how lending markets work.
0: So let's dive into this. Like how much have you learned from starting this business? Not
2: that much. So I started learning about, uh, the gold lending market, read a few papers, did a little bit of research. And then basically stuff started happening with BlockFi and between like needing to do a lot of work related to BlockFi and, uh, trying to maintain some semblance of a personal life. I had to stop going down the gold lending market rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's a lot of things about gold. And I, and, and I think one of the things that would serve Bitcoin advocates better when talking to traditional market investors about Bitcoin, one of the things that would serve them better is to say, what do you know about gold? And the first question to investors, and and I do this all the time when we're talking to institutional investors, they're like, well, why is there even a market for this? It's so stupid. How do you handle the volatility? And to the first question, why is there a market for this? I say, do you know how big the market for gold is? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no, I don't know how big the market for gold is. And then you say, well, it's $7 trillion. And they're like, oh. (laughs) That's a pretty big
0: amount
2: of money. That's yeah. Yeah. That's a good amount of money. That's pretty big. How do you handle for the volatility? Well, did you know that outside of the, the gold lending market, which is different than every other lending market in general, especially as a retail individual, but also as a company, the cheapest asset to borrow against is usually liquid equities. Mm-hmm. Publicly traded liquid equities—that's yeah. like the cheapest asset to borrow against. Cheaper than mortgages, you know. Like it, whatever the whatever the mortgage rate is, like take one hun- take one percent off of that, and that's how much you can borrow money from interactive brokers at or private wealth managers if you're borrowing against a portfolio of stocks. The risk for a lender in lending against stocks is that there's gaps in the market all the time. There's Mm -hmm. gaps in the market every day. There's gaps in the market from market close to market open. Every company puts earnings out in between market close and market open. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. So Tesla, you know, closes at 300 and opens at 330 or whatever. They're
0: going private at 420.
2: They're going private at 420. (laughs) (laughs) Bitcoin (laughs) trades 24-7. And it's a global market. There there are some gaps. GBTC but, and stuff you like know, that. But you know gap. what there's not? You know what there's not? There is no information asymmetry in the Bitcoin market when compared to stocks. So a lot of people know things about stocks that other people don't know. You either work at the company or, you know, you pay uh you pay these knowledge networks to talk to people who work at the company. With Bitcoin, like the information, there, there is no insider
0: information. It's in the wide open. It's like, <laughs> like you, you see the economic. You want to look at the
2: account? data. Yeah. Like it's there. It's a public blockchain. And so we make the case all the time to these institutional investors that, like, one, you don't know how big this market could be because you're just not asking yourself what you should benchmark it against, mm-hmm. and two, you think it's risky because it's volatile, but. Lending against liquid assets is the least risky form of lending there is. And that's why it's priced that way. And the Bitcoin market is a uniquely liquid asset to lend against because there's a lack of information asymmetry and because the market operates 24-7. And then, you know, what these what these like big finance guys really like is when you kind of like one-up them in like the mental like jockeying of like, fuck. Institutional oh, yeah. finance. Oh, yeah. Then they're kind of like, ah, oh, that guy was smart. <laughs> 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 Maybe we should give him two hundred million bucks. Well, it makes that's sense, that. right? Like, and
0: like it is a 24/7, 365 liquid market. Like, and that's like coming from like a futures perspective. Like, if something would gap up overnight, like I'd have to get to the office, with like sweating like always sucks shit. if you're a trader exactly exactly you
2: don't you want to trade what do you want to trade public equities or bitcoin public equities all day i want to work from <laughs> nine to four monday to friday and take holidays off exactly bitcoin uh-uh
0: no it's not possible it's not possible that's why i stopped trading bitcoin it was literally it was literally too a, hard man hindrance on my health i was like it's I too cannot hard. be staying up all over <laughs> <laughs> and ah it's a beauty of it. We have a whole new capital formation system via Bitcoin. And so let's bring this back to BlockFi. Right now you have Bitcoin as collateral for loans, which is an incredible first iteration of a product. What do you guys have going for? Like, what are your ideas going for? What is in your product suite in 10 years, a decade from now, what do you envision BlockFi growing to?
2: That's so far uh, in the future. But some of the some of the things we're prioritizing are lowering the cost so Mm -hmm. we we based on our knowledge of the market we are the cheapest lender against bitcoin or ether that exists today we intend to maintain that position we are going to expand to cover international markets outside of the us whereas today we're just in the us we are going to um Diversify the product suite probably first into a line of credit type product. So a loan is a little bit rigid, right? Like it's like you take this amount of money, you pay me back on this time frame. What if it were a line of credit where you could just say, I'm going to store some collateral with BlockFi and then if, whenever I want to draw on it, I'll draw on it. Mm-hmm. Also credit cards. So one of the things that I would like love to do and I think will have a huge impact on adoption is create a credit card powered by the traditional credit scoring system and traditional bank funding mechanisms where instead of earning fiat cash back, you're in Bitcoin cash back. Like there's a lot of Bitcoin people that would love that. And a lot of people who are like, I don't know if I want to spend my money on Bitcoin, but if you gave it to me as cash back, like hell yeah, I'll take it
3: would you
0: would you have to build like a liquidity to pull Bitcoin to to provide that cash back? Or would it be No, we would just we would just do
2: we would just do cash back the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking once to somebody ha- who's
0: never had a credit card.
2: You should definitely get a credit card. You're talking man. to
0: somebody who's never had a credit card.
2: You and your girl are gonna want to buy a house at some point.
0: Oh, yes. I mean my girl has a credit card. I do not I'm I'm in and this is something I get yelled at a lot for. I do not like that. I did not like going into credit. My student loan debt's enough. Uh, Why am I an asshole for not having a credit card? Please tell me. I am an asshole for not having it. Because
2: it... it. Basically, because we live in a capitalist, debt-fueled system where it's actually more beneficial for you to have a credit card than not. And I'll give you the simplest reason why. Take however much money you spend every month. Mm-hmm. Say it's a thousand dollars. say it, Say it's a hundred thousand because you look super rich. <laughs> <laughs> so you spend hundred. Don't
0: laugh at me like that.
2: <laughs> you spend hundred thousand dollars. You spend a hundred thousand dollars every month. Right now, because you don't have a credit card, you're doing it on a debit card or with cash. Yes. If you did it with a credit card, you would actually only spend ninety-eight thousand dollars a month. You know why? Because we've designed this beautiful system that gives you two percent of your money yeah, back spend. when you spend money and you can like knock it but like the math is the math
0: makes sense yeah
2: so 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 that's why you're an asshole for not having credit cards yeah. now I'm coming to this realization I actually should admit
0: that I just got my first credit card very low uh very low credit limit, but I'm using it to it.
2: I mean, look, I don't recommend that anybody ever carry a balance on a credit card. If you're carrying a balance on a credit card, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You set up auto pay. You pay on the, on the second to last day that you can. And you, you pay it off in full every month. You take your 2% cash back. And then, and then when you want to take your girl to you know XYZ, Caribbean Island, or you know, wherever you go for vacation, you spend the points taking a carnival spend cruise. the points. Nice. Spend the points. On, spend the points on the cruise. I mean, but in all seriousness, like
0: No, I'm just getting abreast the points right now. I feel like I've missed out.
2: Luckily I'm You still didn't you well luckily you didn't miss out. The capitalist system is still just churning, <laughs> man. You can get a 100,000 point sign-up bonus like right now. And it's, it's and it's basically like a $1,000 of free money. It's really good. So so there's it feels insi- too good to be true though. But it's it is true.
0: Yeah. But it's true until it isn't. So that's the whole thing with our...
2: Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. Why not? School me. It is true until it isn't? It's true right now.
0: We can only accrue that debt until there's a tipping point where it's like, all right, we're not going to be able to pay back.
2: No, but you just got to understand how the system works. And here's how the system works with credit cards. With credit cards, they pass on the cost to the merchant. So the Mm -hmm. credit card lobby was really smart. When they were getting set up in the early days, they were like, all right, let's... Let's build some moats around like our our ecosystem. Customers
0: okay? don't care about chargebacks at all.
2: No, customers don't care. No. Because why would I care? I actually love it. Yeah. Like, it's, I get a fraudulent charge or something happens. Every I'm five like, years, I'm like, no, oh,
0: like, I didn't spend that. Somebody stole my credit card.
2: Yeah. Boom. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's great for consumers, Um and you get the points. You know, uh, merchants eat the fee, so. To take it back to Bitcoin, there could be an angle where you say, "Hey, we're going to undercut the credit card companies. Like, if Bitcoin can find a way to make payments as fast and in, as user-friendly of a method as credit cards, but the merchants pay 25 bips instead of like the the one to three percent that they pay now. That is hugely valuable.
0: You just scrapped Lightning Network, right?
2: Yeah, and that's why we're so pumped about it. Yeah. Have
0: you guys been experimenting with lightning at all? I have not.
2: I have, I have zero technical skills. My engineers, the tech team at BlockFi, who's so talented, they, like, laugh at me every day, and I play into it because I, I hope that it's endearing. Um, <laughs> like, you know, sending like...
0: Send in the bit, the bit meetups. do they go to bit devs? Uh,
2: I, I don't know if they do or don't, but I should. You're right.
0: I should. It's uh, the best meetup in New York. Do you guys, do you feel, again, like, so going back to, like, mission-driven stuff, do you feel, like, fulfilled by this work, I guess I would say?
2: I love it, man. Like, I, I couldn't be happier. We work really, really hard. Um, there's nothing I'd rather be doing, and that's a refreshing feeling. Yeah, exactly. it's a refreshing feeling to wake up and be like, you know what? We just raised $50 million from Galaxy, and we need to raise another, like, 10 in the next month and then another 200 like in the next quarter and then like you just got to keep raising money which is my my I think primary job as a CEO I have other jobs but that's my main job like don't run out of money have enough money all the time and it's not easy but I love it and I'm like super pumped like there's Brad and the rest of the people on our team who are similarly working very hard and we have so much cool stuff that we can make happen. So much cool stuff that we can make happen.
0: What is your, uh, uh what is your, like your ideal goal by the end of block five, like block product suites built out. You guys are solidified, like just like a simple a fucking money product moving into the future. It's
2: so simple. I want to be lending money to people in countries that have horrible, monetary policy at rates that are analogous to what it costs to borrow money against like Amazon stock in the US if you're a rich person right now. Mm-hmm. I want to lend money to people in like hyperinflationary environments backed by Bitcoin, backed by Ether at 5%. Like like if I do that, I'll be like, "Nice, man."
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's and let's dive into this, how this will help capital formation. Like, what do you think, what gateways do you think this will open? Like, opening entrepreneurs outside of the U.S. to this type of funding. Like, what are the the possibilities?
2: That well, credit doesn't to. exist in a lot of these places. Exactly, Credit doesn't exist for retail people. So, when I say... You, and I
0: would argue they probably have better ideas because they have the worst problems that they need to solve.
2: Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, you, you've seen... There's some data out there from like Kiva and other organizations about how uh, microfinance impacts communities Mm -hmm. and how, if you, if you extend even really small amounts of credit to people, economic activity grows. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to convey with that tweet that you mentioned earlier about how Bitcoin or crypto is the most financeable asset. Yeah.
0: If you take accessibility into, into account, crypto may be the most financeable consumer asset the world has ever seen.
2: That's right. Like, what could, what could someone in Argentina own that would enable someone in New York who's connected to the best debt capital market system that the world has ever seen to lend to them? Prior to Bitcoin, the answer would be nothing that there's nothing that person with less than a thousand dollars to their name can buy that would enable someone from the u s with institutional funding to lend money to them at a low rate nothing and now the answer is Bitcoin and that's huge
0: it's huge it's beautiful it's and this is freaks something you need to realize like this is a new door opening for a new possibility for the whole world, and that's one thing. I feel bad; like people don't realize the gravity of the situation that we're in. I don't think, um, but we are—we're near. We've two gone hours. deep. We've we're gone near gone two hours deep. In. I don't want to. I've got to go home. I don't want to <laughs> repeat. I don't want to <laughs> start repeating myself about anything. But again, like I am fascinated by it because you guys are enabling a new type of. I want to say Yeah, you're enabling a new type of economy, a new type of access. You're enabling a new type of access to the world economy that has never existed before. And that fascinates me. It's exciting. And I'm happy for you that you guys are a part of it. You're a
2: part of it too, man. This Uh is the most professional podcast we've ever been on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But most professional. (laughs) I'm literally wearing a dazed and confused t-shirt. Right it's now. also my first
2: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is great. Thanks so much for having us on, man. Oh, it's not over yet. Oh, it's Zach, not are you trying to end this podcast I'm early? S- I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, I'm happy to be on the front lines with you guys. Like, do you have a, like a parting note, a parting pitch, a parting, anything for the freaks out there? Like, what would you say to them? Like from your experience coming up to now? Uh, do you have advice or people? Do you have, like, what have you learned? Do you have a parting note
2: for anybody? Sure, my parting note is, if you're still listening to this podcast after we've been talking for two hours, number one, thanks. Number two, if there's any way I could potentially help you, shoot me an email, and I will, because it's a long podcast. This is right on at Zach part. at BlockFi.com. Z-A-C. Z-A-C, no K, no C H, no K, no C H, just Zac, at BlockFi.com. dot com.
1: I'll help you
2: out because I'm impressed with your podcast listening durability.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, Zach, I don't want you to shit on the podcast too much. All right, this is the it's average a- duration of the podcast. I'm not. I'm not shitting we ended on it. Like I'm not. two
2: hours. I'm not shitting on it at all. I'm no, just I saying it's tangents. hard, man. You know, like I'm no, not, it's hard, like. People don't have the most time.
0: They don't. They don't. That's why you got to listen at one and a half speed. And I've been on a no carb diet and the <laughs> only carbs I've been drinking are alcohol. So I got a little inebriated tonight. I, I appreciate you. I feel uh, great. I appreciate you hanging in with me uh, the night before my big move and drinking some alcohol with me. When's the housewarming? Uh, that's a great question. <sighs> Probably a week from tomorrow. A week from tomorrow, you guys are invited address redacted but
2: <laughs> i'll get I'll get, you, I'll get you i'll get you a a well-potted cactus it's the best housewarming gift i've ever received you know why i'm a plant killer it doesn't die <sighs> you can't kill it <laughs> doesn't need water do it just mean, stays there looking pretty to me, i will kill this cactus in a week dude i was no. you I, dude i was you like five years ago Someone gave me a cactus, and we've I was had, like, "I was like, that's a perfect housewarming gift."
0: We've had, we've had five plants in the last
2: year, and all died.
0: You know what? Bring the cactus to me.
2: You have to like tr- really, really try. Yeah, you I'm have to look, really, really try look to kill the cactus, cactus with scoring. You, you, hey, you have to, you have to intentionally kill it. Like you have to be like, <laughs> "Hey, cactus, I'm going to kill you now." <laughs> if you just neglect it, it thrives. <sighs>
0: That's sort of like my viewership, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
3: This
0: has been an incredible two hours. Zach and Brad, that was your last thought. Brad, do you have a last thought?
1: I think you should also invest in some succulents.
0: No, succulents suck.
1: I've turned into the succulent whisperer in our apartment.
0: I killed, uh, I, the last succulent I got, it literally had like little bugs flying around it. Like it infected oh, our dangerous. part. Yeah. 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 So I had to throw that out.
1: I highly recommend Trader Joe's succulents.
0: <laughs> Trader bros. Yeah. Good succulents. And if you're looking to buy wine, great deals. Absolutely. Gentlemen, the pleasure has been all mine tonight. Thank you for uh putting up my drunk shit and uh, diving into these conversations. Likewise. You freaks out there. Check out BlockFi. Uh, especially if you are a hodler out there looking to leverage your Bitcoin. that's like, Again, going back to this, like this whole conversation is about being able to use your Bitcoin in ways that you didn't think were possible before. Like you can lever up and become a better investor with products via BlockFi. I would argue that what you guys are doing is leaps and bounds above what people are trying to do at the protocol level with other tokens. Like this is... What you guys are doing provides more utility than any other than any like coin with a protocol can produce. You are producing real economic activity. And I thank you for that.
2: We're just trying to give Bitcoiners more money.
0: <laughs> and I can't hate that. You can find me at Marty Bent on Twitter at Zach
2: at, BlockFi. At BlockFi Zach.
0: At BlockFi Zach. Z A C. No H no K. No H no K. And Brad. At
1: Brad Michelson.
0: And, and that's Michelson, M-I-C-H-E-L-S-O-N. And go check them out at BlockFi.com. Um, I'm your boy, Barty Bent. Subscribe to my newsletter. Rate this podcast, not terribly. Rate a good rate. Maybe four stars. Four stars. I'll take four stars. I love all you freaks. Peace and love.